John chapter 13, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd ask that you would open the Word of God to John 13. Uh, We're going to cover this amazing chapter today, truly just uh, an overwhelming statement of who Jesus is as we talk about this today. There is a... um, I've titled the sermon the great the great picture of love because that's that's kind of what we see here as we get to the end of of Jesus's life. But I'm going to share a story first, a true story, uh, to open up and begin to build an illustration into um, the text that we're going to read. Uh, in the late fourth century A.D., there was a young teenage boy left, who left his home early one morning to go play on the uh, western English coastline with some friends on the beach. He was a nominal Christian boy who was from a very prominent English family. And this day, particular day, when he rose before everybody else to go play on the beach, it would prove world-changing. Irish pirates scoured the western English coast that day and they took the boy and his friends captive. Later, he would be sold into slavery in Ireland. For over six years, he was thrust into servitude under a harsh master by the name of Milku. Working in the fields with sheep and dogs, he he noted the Irish pagan worship practices and slowly began to learn to pray in the harsh reality of his own solitude. At first, it was his prayers would be for freedom. They would be for material comforts, but later as a young man, it led to a a prayer life consistent with a deepening love for who Christ was and a new burning passion in his heart. An opportunity for freedom led him back to England as a young man where he thought he would resume his life of self-fulfillment and self-entitlement. But shortly after arriving home, God arrested his heart to serve his captors with the gospel of Christ. In a dream, he even heard the people in Ireland cry out to him saying, O holy youth, walk with us once more. He had to give up his life and his wealth for those who needed Christ most. After training, he went back to Ireland and 12 times he faced death, including being kidnapped again for a harrowing two weeks. Little by little, the pagans in Ireland came to Christ. A church was formed. He served them, and he loved them, and he continued to form one community of faith after another on this island that we know today as Ireland. That man named Patrick never left Ireland again. He died having started two hundred churches, training men, women, and people for ministry that would later spread across all Europe as new converts would leave Ireland to take the gospel to places that we know today as France and Italy and Eurasia. All because this man chose to surrender his life and serve in love those who needed Christ the most, even if they were people who hated Him the most. And that's that's the story of St. Patrick's Day that we don't often get. Um, and yet, I love St. Patrick's Day because it's a reminder to me of what great servant love, evangelism, and church planting looks like. I actually took a church planting course when I was in seminary, and uh, Patrick of Ireland was one of the models that we used with regard to how to plant churches and starting communities of faith in pagan communities and pagan cultures. But simply because God arrested his heart and gave him a heart to serve people in love. The Gospel of John is often referred to as the Gospel of Love, and John is often referred to as the Apostle of Love, because of how he refers to himself, he never refers to himself in the first person. He wrote, if you notice, when you read the Gospel of John, anytime he refers to himself, he never refers to himself as John. He always refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. 
And he added emphasis on that love, a very special kind of emphasis in the Gospel of John that you don't read in the other synoptic Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke. You get a you get a, a sense of Christ's love in all the Gospels, but John's Gospel gives us uh, a tremendous, detailed, passionate view of the love of Christ and everything that that love means for you and I. So let's begin reading John 13 together today, kicking off in verse 1. This amazing picture of love. And here's the deal. We are now in the last day of Christ's life. We're we're entering into the last day of Christ's life. As we enter into Thursday evening and then Friday, uh, we know what happens on that Friday. John 13.1 Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you or to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now we'll pause there. We're going to pick up the rest of the chapter in a second. John is the only gospel that records the foot washing. Why? Because it fits the narrative of the massive scope of the love of Christ and the the depth to which He would go in order to portray and demonstrate what real love looks like. Especially for us. Like in that very first verse of John 13, in John 13.1, get this, let me read it again. For before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Do you get this? He's, he's laying the foundation for the foot washing with the premise that this was Christ's um, this was Christ's duty. This was Christ's calling. This is Christ's initiative. It was He who was going to model the great act of love that He was about to do, even though the end was coming. The last thing He was going to do before the end was to model what great love looks like. And it looks like foot washing. Um, 
Author Eric Swanson of Crew, which used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ, which I still always call Campus Crusade for Christ, um, he put it this way. He said, you can serve people without loving them, but you cannot love people without serving them. You can serve people without loving them, but you cannot love people without serving them. That's the example that Christ gave us here. In filthy, dusty, ancient Palestine, feet needed to be washed often. It was just part of life. You know, today, many of us, uh, when we're traveling the dirty, dusty roads of life, we wear shoes accordingly, and we don't have the filth and the dust like they did back then. I mean, we travel concrete and asphalt, unfortunately, many times. We don't run and play in the dirt in our bare feet. Um, unless you're Amish, I guess. But the, the, the bigger picture here is that back then it was just who you were. Your feet were just nasty. I mean, I think feet are nasty anyway. Even if you just took a shower this morning, I think your feet are nasty because I don't like feet. But back then, you really had a reason not to like feet because it was just gross. Everywhere you had been was symbolized on your feet. Just devote on that for a second in light of what Christ is about to do. Everywhere you had been and everywhere you had come from was represented on your feet. So in those days, usually what would happen is an individual washed their own feet when they came into the home. There may have been a, a pitcher of water outside or a uh, maybe if they were wealthy enough, they had a servant that would wash their feet. But a really hospitable host, if you were going to a dinner like this, would provide you a servant who would wash everybody's feet. It was something that was provided for the most meaningful of guests. And it was done by the lowliest servant in the home. There was no lower position in the home than the servant who was given the responsibility to wash someone's feet. And the person who was esteemed the most in the home was the guest who received the foot washing. Do you see the picture that we're painting here? Do you see the premise as to why Christ would insert Himself into this role? Your story, your filth, everywhere you've been is representative or represented upon your feet. The filth of your past is carried forward upon your feet. The lowliest of person is the person who would have the responsibility to wash your feet. And the most esteemed among the host would be the one who would receive the foot washing. And yet Christ inserts Himself right into this position. It speaks volumes to us churches to who we are to be as lovers of Christ as disciples of Christ. We love to think of being disciples of Christ. We are people who are learning the Bible. We are people who go to church. We are people who attend Bible study. We are people of prayer. And all those things, seriously significant. But the one that gets lost on us the most is that we are a people who are disciples of Christ that give of ourselves in order to serve people out of love. So let me give you this morning four aspects of Christ-like servanthood. We see them spelled out so clearly right here in this great example of love. And the first is this. You are a person who serves out of your position. You serve out of your position. Your position isn't a, a title that you carry. It's not what the world says you deserve. As far as Christ is concerned, your position is who you are in your willingness to humble yourself. We know that the craving for recognition is, exists in this world. I mean, it's the reality of who we are as human beings. People want to be recognized. They want titles. They want positions. And oftentimes, the ability to serve is counter to what our human sinfulness 
craves with regard to recognition and position and title. You see, we want to be known. And oftentimes when you want to be known, it conflicts with your ability to serve out of love. Uh, Even after this great example, this is how twisted our hearts are. Even after this great example that Christ gave His disciples as He washed their own feet and He told them that if I, your Lord, your Master, your Teacher, would do this for you, then you need to do this one for the other. After He gives this example, this is the conversation in Luke 22 that followed. (laughs) A dispute also arose among them. This is after. As to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? Even after Jesus gives this example, He takes off His outer garments, He wraps the towel around Himself, He takes their filthy feet in His hands, He pours water over each one of their feet, and He washes that disgustingness off of them in the most humbling of ways. And then the conversation that follows is between themselves. Now, are you going to be the greatest with Him, or am I going to be the greatest with Him? What position are you going to have when we get to His kingdom? What position am I going to have in the kingdom? How can I be greater than you? That was the question. It just goes to show how quickly our twisted, sinful human hearts revert back to position over servanthood and love. And yet Jesus says again to them, He says to them, but I am among you as the one who serves. So we say to ourselves, well, you know, Jesus certainly didn't serve out of His position. I mean, He was God. And he was doing this. I mean, my position as a sinful human being, I mean, it just kind of makes sense that, you know, I need to be doing these things. Maybe even in our minds, we think out of some sort of strange form of penance. We need to be doing these disgusting things uh, in order to honor Christ. We serve other people in hard ways in order to prove ourselves worthy of Jesus. But Jesus didn't have to do that. I mean, he was God. That's right. He didn't have to do these things. And yet He did. So, if the Son of God can humble Himself to do this, then we can each serve out of our rightful place of nothingness. If the Son of God can humble Himself in position in order to serve you and I and to wash feet why would we not be willing to do the exact same thing because we hold no position apart from Christ? Aspects of Christ-like servanthood. The second point this morning is this. Not only do we serve out of our position, which is humility, but we serve with our actions. We serve with our actions. There's a word here. This isn't just Jesus saying, I love you. This isn't just Jesus saying, I want to care for you. I'm going to do these things for you. This is Jesus actually doing them. The verb do, what I do for you now, you don't understand. This is an active uh, action with regard to the kingdom of God. This is not just sitting back in church and taking in. This is not attending a church in order to receive and be fed. This is not about being a Christian in order that you can um, uh, uh, be recognized. This is about a Christian walk, being a disciple of Christ that prioritizes doing. Doing. Saying you love without the willingness to give of yourself is not a Christ-like faith at all. Let me say that again. Saying you love without a willingness to give of yourself is not Christ-like faith at all. True love 
has hands and feet. Listen to what James says when describing what real faith looks like. He says in James 2, verses 14 to 17, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can the faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Sometimes, being hands may mean merely resting, taking those hands and resting them on another person's shoulder while they sob. That's serving another person. Sometimes being feet means taking those feet and walking with someone through the fire of their life. Sometimes it means taking those feet and hands and actually carrying somebody through the fires of life. In our frail humanity, we can't serve every single person, which as a pastor, I'm just being transparent with you, hurts me the most. You wish you could fix everybody's problems. You wish you could provide the perfect solutions for every fire that everybody is experiencing. You can't be everything to everybody. But I do know this, the person you choose to be hands and feet to, their life will be impacted forever. That's why we're not designed to do life individually as Christians. We are designed to do life as a body as segments of a body, as groupings of people who walk through life together and if I'm unable because of my time constraints or my actual physical abilities to be able to help this person, this person, and this person, I can focus on this person knowing that the body of Christ is equally um, open and able to serve this person over here. We are all hands and feet. The Apostle Paul would say, We are all members, parts of one body. Hands, feet, eyes, neck, ears, shoulders, toes. That's what we make up the body. We contribute those parts in order to see people loved on and served. I think personally, in my years of pastoral ministry, one of the greatest examples of this are the people who choose to give of themselves in order to serve the littlest ones. Talk about a no-nonsense, thankless, many times thankless, unrecognized sacrifice are people who choose to give of themselves in order to just serve little ones who... I mean, it, it gets ugly sometimes. Right? Like, sometimes... A child shows up in class and they're not quite to the level of potty training that you and their parents thought that they were. Sometimes they're going to say some things that are just brutally honest. Um, Sometimes they're going to come and they just did not sleep enough the night before. Sometimes you're trying to teach a very important biblical concept to little ones. And all of a sudden, words like farts and poopies just start popping up in the classroom and you're left in crisis mode to think, what am I going to do with this? And yet every week, or on your rotation every month, you come in and you faithfully serve. And you serve knowing that I won't get into the worship service this week. You serve knowing that maybe my family is going to be separated this week. I'm going to be in here and they're going to be in there. And yet you do. Why? Because the kingdom investment is incalculable. You can't put a number on it. You can't quantify it. When you take a child and you slowly introduce them to Christ, uh, sometimes introducing them to Christ is merely sitting on the floor and playing games and singing songs about Jesus with them while you wipe their nose because they came in with a cold. It's just the way it goes. But that's serving. That's washing hands, or that's washing feet. Somebody just asked our family this past week who 
somebody who's not a regular church attender, and they said, you know, um, your son and daughter, you know, do they do they actually read the Bible and begin to understand it? On this is an adult saying, do they read it and, and understand it? Yeah, sometimes, not all the time, but they they read it on their own and they begin to understand things on their own. How is that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. Because since the day my boy was knee-high to a grasshopper, since the day, uh, what, it was the second week of life was the first time my son went to church. And since that day, there was a, a man named Ed Caberna. And when Ben was just half invisible. And Mr. Caberna took our Ben every week. And if he was fussy, he would pick him up and he would carry him. And if he was in, if Ben was good, he would sing songs with him or they would teach Bible lessons. But what Mr. Caberna's greatest, while Mrs. Caberna was the one who did a lot of the Bible study teaching and stuff, Mr. Caberna's greatest skill was to be able to get any fussy child to quiet down. Is that right, Mindy? I mean, like it was a gift from God. The man would touch a child and he would stop crying. And if you're a man, that's a real gift. But he was so faithful. And um, and I remember when it was time for... Ben's getting a little embarrassed now. It was time for Ben to be potty trained. Remember this conversation? Mr. Caberna was the one that says... He was the one that reminded us, you're waiting too long now. The boy needs to stop pooping his pants. But why? He loved Benjamin. He loved him. Loved him. Loved him. Gave her himself. We have people in this church that are doing that. And I just want to take a second to recognize them. Um, Pam's going to come forward, and we want to say thank you to these It just made sense that during a message like this, these people would um, be noticed because they're going to leave this worship service in a few minutes, some of them, and they're going to go right back in there with those little ones giving of themselves. So I'm going to, I'm going to mention these names, and what I want you to do is I want you to come up Pam has something for you on behalf of our children's ministry, and I want you to line up along the front here. You can start down at the far end here, okay? These are people who are serving in your church, either on a part-time or regular basis, little ones. Sharon Williams, Brittany Beisline, Ramona Davis, Raquel Cornaccio, Christine Beisline, Sabrina Merrill, Samantha Groff, Kayla Jones, college student, Mateen Patrick, Angela Beard, Abby Mosier, serving in nursery this week, and another college student, Tracy Landis, Rachel and Jason Cornaccio, Chad Hershey, Andy Weber, Madonna Spate, Nancy Patrick, and she's serving this week too, Connie Madden, our ministry leaders in children's ministry are Jackie Hershey, Mindy Snyder, Elizabeth Yance, Miss Pam here. And we have youths that are being, um, or in my cousin Vinny's case, youths that are being trained. And they serve faithfully alongside these workers as well. Felicity Yance, Caitlin Weber, Maddie Morrison and Olivia Morrison, Annie and Ben Snyder, Craig Patrick the Younger, Cassie O'Shell, and Abby O'Shell. Now if you think to yourself, gosh, it's like the whole church is standing up here. <laughs> it's true. Um, there's so many things that we are able to do as a church because we invest in the lives of little ones. Someday, adults, we won't be here anymore. But the little ones will. And they're going to be carrying forward 
the gospel of Christ because of the foundation that we have laid. Washing feet, serving out of the great love for Jesus. Would you um, help me in just giving a round of thanks to these people who serve? Thank you all. You can be seated. So servanthood, we serve because we love. We serve out of our position of humility. Anybody who is in Christ should understand what humility is. We serve out of our actions that we put hands and feet. We don't just wish people well. We just don't tell people we love them, but we actually behave that way. Third point this morning is this. And and this is maybe my favorite point of the morning. You serve out of your own hardship. You serve out of your hardship. One of the greatest distractions or obstacles to giving of ourselves in service is often our focus upon our own difficulties and our own hardships. We think that we are incapable of giving to another. We think that we are incapable of serving another person because of the limitations in our own life. Our heart is broken. Um, We are not um, financially capable. Uh, Whatever the reason may be, we can think of our own hardship as the limitation to being able to give of ourselves to another, to serve them in love. And And it can't be. Because when you you think about the Lord Jesus, the the last acts committed by Him prior to His betrayal and His arrest were centered around serving and giving. Here, He washes their feet. Like, hours away from His arrest, a day away from His death, and yet He's doing this. Do you, we know that within a matter of moments they would be in the Garden of Gethsemane and we know what His heart's anguish was. We know what the Lord's hardship was personally at this point in time, don't we? We know that He is just um, broken over what's about to happen to Him. And yet out of this anguish, out of this hardship, the Lord still chooses to get down on his hands and knees and take his disciples' filthy feet upon himself and wash them in order to model what love looks like. Why would our hardships be any different? Why would, why should our hardships be an excuse to not serve Christ? Doesn't it make more sense as a believer? Doesn't it seem that we could have even more impact if we were open to serving out of our hardships instead of avoiding service because of our hardships. He washes their feet. Later he would heal the ear of the one who was arresting him and had his ear cut off. Lastly, he would give his everything by volunteering his life on the cross. And as he does these things, certain words ring in our ears. Like John chapter 15, we think about this. When the Lord said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Our pain can either be an excuse to not love, or it can be the greatest motivator for the love that we offer. Um... Just to be fair, I should use my Annie as an example too. This week, my Annie um, tripped and fell in our family room. And um, unfortunately, she caught herself on our wood stove. She burned her hand pretty bad. And I would probably say, just based upon what I was hearing, it was the worst pain she had experienced in her life up to that point. And the pain led her to lash out 
um, things start coming out of your mouth when you're in that level of pain. You start criticizing everything that somebody who's trying to help you, uh, you criticize and you critique and you're not satisfied and you get angry and all of it just makes a lot of sense when you see how much somebody is hurting. Um, and Mindy reminded me of this. She said, you know, it's not uncommon in the hospital when you see people in great pain to become very hostile. Uh, and I know, you know, John's an EMT and he could probably attest to this too. People who are suffering, oftentimes in their pain, they become hostile, almost violent, angry towards the people who they're supposed to love. We choose as Christians what our reaction is going to be in the midst of our pain and how we're going to capitalize on that. The thing that gave us the most hope as parents was that after the whole thing had settled down and after some um, pain had been relieved and some medicine had been applied and after we had kind of gotten the, the, the point across that this is not going to be the death of her um, and she calmed down a little bit, our Annie turned to her mom and said, I'm really sorry that I said those things. Um, that's all of us. We choose who we're going to be in the midst of our hardship and our pain. And we can either capitalize on it for the sake of Christ or we can neuter the impact of the kingdom of God. Hardship and personal struggles. Here's the deal. I think as Jesus was in the midst of His hardship and He was serving, it just added to the effect, the impact. Maybe not right away, but after the fact, these men, we knew these men got it. They understood the significance of what it was that He had done and what He had done in the midst of what He was going through. Hardships and personal struggles make our service to others that more, much more significant and meaningful if you think about it. Serving out of your hardship says to somebody, I feel with you. It doesn't just say, I see what you're going through. It says, I feel with you. When you serve out of your hardship, it says, I serve something and someone bigger. And here's where I get this from. Look at Paul's statement in Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. Now the context here, Paul is, there was this new reality of um, bond servants, uh, slaves who were coming to Christ and now what this new relationship between master and worker was to look like when master and worker were now both born again in Christ. And Paul says these words, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. I love that. Do the service as unto the Lord. You're not doing it for your earthly master. You're not doing it out of duty. You're doing it out of a love for Christ. Out of a love for the Lord. When we serve people in our hardship, it says to them that there is something in my life that's even bigger, even more important, even more significant than my situation, than my circumstance, and than my pain. Serving out of hardship says, I need more of Christ's presence in my life. When you serve somebody out of your hardship, you're saying, I need more of Christ's presence in my life. And when we serve others, we invite more of Christ into our lives. Last point this morning is this. We serve out of our position of humility. We serve with actions and not just words. We serve out of our own hardship. And lastly, we serve for the purpose of witness and sanctification. Big fancy word, sanctification. I'll get to that in a second. 
We serve out of our witness and our sanctification. Jesus gives an honest statement here of connection between washing and regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration is when a person is born again. When a person is washed in the blood of Christ, they are at that moment regenerated. They are made into a new creation in Christ. They are justified in the presence of the Lord. It is when a person is forgiven in Christ, when they have by faith trusted in the forgiveness of Christ that comes on the cross, at that moment, their status changes. They are now redeemed forever, eternally. And a process begins at that point. The process of sanctification. It's at that point that the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life and they begin a... uh, They've been cleansed, all of them. But now a scrubbing begins to take place in a person. Because we are always, while we're on this earth, caught up in the flesh, right? I don't know a single Christian, aside from Joyce Meyer, who says that they're not a sinner anymore now that they're in Christ. We are all sinners, even after we have received Christ. But what we have now is the advantage of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us, that convicts us, that shows us a more excellent way, that washes us as we go through life. It's our journey to be made and transformed more into the likeness of Christ. So, Peter, Peter, the dude with the the mouth shaped like a foot, again decides that he's going to rebuke the Lord, because I guess the first time he rebuked the Lord, I guess it felt it went pretty well, that he should turn around and rebuke him again. Remember, he did it in Matthew 16 when he told Jesus that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem to die, and Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan. Here he does it again. Jesus basically says, Hey, Peter, give me your foot. Let me wash your foot. Peter pulls his foot back. No, you, Lord, are not going to wash my feet. But I love Jesus' response here. It's different than Matthew 16. Matthew 16, he said, get behind me, Satan. Here, he says, if I don't wash you, you're not clean. And, and Peter's response is beautiful. Peter says, well then, not just my feet, wash all of me. I love that. There's something clicking there in that statement. I don't know if he fully understood regeneration and sanctification, but Peter got something here. That if Jesus needed to wash him, Peter wanted not just his feet, he wanted the whole car wash. He wanted everything. He wanted the deluxe version. I want all of Jesus to wash me. And then Jesus says, but if you've been washed by me, then it's just this part of you that needs to be cleansed. Because it's true in each one of us. If we've been regenerated in Christ, if we've been washed, if if there's a time where you've been forgiven in Jesus Christ, you are cleansed. But there is the ongoing process of sanctification that is going to continually need some individual cleansing. My life and your life, they're both true. You may not want to admit it or not, but there's stuff in your life and there's stuff in my life that God needs to keep scrubbing so that I look more like Christ. The washing that Jesus is talking about here was the kind that leads to regeneration, spiritual cleansing, and the forgiveness of sin. Paul's words in Titus chapter 3 tell us this. He said to Titus, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. That sounds like a quality life. But when the goodness of God and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's when Christ came into our life, the Holy Spirit renewed us and regenerated us and made us clean. Bear with me just a few more minutes here because I don't want to leave this chapter undone. I want to read to you the rest of of John's account here in John 13. The story goes on. 
after Jesus um, washes their feet, in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit. And He testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom He spoke. One of His disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to Him to ask Jesus of whom He was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to Him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is He to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when He had dipped the morsel, He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after He had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, or because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. What a tough night for Peter. I want to focus just as we close on a profound, the profound words that we should all dwell on as a church. And it's seen in verses 34 and 35 again. Let me throw it up there. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Who's the one another? The body of believers. The followers of Christ. He's not talking to the lost world here. He's talking to a group of men that have committed their lives to be His disciples. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then here's the the, the earth-shaking thing that I just wish that we as a church and every church that follows Christ in this country and the world would get. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We, I'm not just saying this church, generally speaking the church, we don't even know one another. How do we love one another? There is no place for a church where people can come and go and not know one another because that guarantees me of one thing. They are not loving one another if they don't even know one another. And if they're not loving one another, it guarantees me of something else. They're missing out on the most powerful and effective form of evangelism that God has given the church today. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why should God honor an evangelism training that we do, or some sort of outreach effort that we engage in, or some sort of community ministry that a community group adopts, why should God uh, uh, why should God honor that if it's a church that doesn't know one another or a church that doesn't do a good job of loving one another? We, when we started this church, all gears were fired on evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. We didn't even want to mention the name Living Legacy Church for fear it would confuse people as to what the Gospel of Christ was. And then God gave me this verse. And at about year one, it dawned on me, we're defeating ourselves. 
We're trying to win people to Christ, and then we're not even telling them what they're being won into, which is the body of Christ. They're not, they have no idea that the body of Christ exists for this kind of love. We're saving them and sending them out into the storm rather than saving them into a loving body of people. I don't pretend to know everybody's heart here, but I just want to challenge you with this this morning. There's no place in God's church for pretenders. There's no place in God's church for people living on the periphery. There's no place in God's church for spectators. We have to do life together. Love one another. That looks like serving one another. And when we serve and love one another, we look like Jesus. And when we do that, the rest of the world notices. This is God's economy. I don't know how this stuff all fleshes out. I need to diagram how you know loving one another is going to cause people to come to Christ. I don't, I'm afraid I can't do a good job of that. I'm just taking Jesus at His word. If we love one another, serve one another, people, the lost world, will notice us as disciples of Christ. When we serve our church family, we demonstrate to the world what the loving disciple of Jesus looks like. That's our our closing thought this morning as we consider foot washing. I'm not here to bash other churches' theology either, but I will say this. This text isn't a sacrament. This isn't a go instill foot washing as part of every worship service you do or every wedding ceremony you're involved in. It's fine if you do that. This text models for us the fact that loving one another is a dirty business, it's a sacrificial business, it's a humbling business, and it's a Jesus business. And we need to be about it. Let's pray.